hear this good news from the uh, gospel according to John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. Receive this good word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, The Gospel according to John. So the next several months, probably into the spring of next year, we're going to be looking at this book, going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The title is The Invisible Made Visible. I mentioned a few weeks ago um, that we are going to be in John's prologue, which means the first 18 verses of the gospel according to John is his introduction. That's where we're going to be for the third time. Actually, we're going to finish up today in verse 18, um, looking at the end, the last four verses, five verses of the gospel according to John. Next week, we'll look at John the Baptist. We're going to pull some verses from uh, 6 and 8, verse 15, and then kind of just do an overview of the first chapter on John the Baptist. Uh, If you remember, the gospel according to John is not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, who's writing this letter, and he speaks about John the Baptist in the first chapter. So that's where we're going to be. Um, What we need to do, though, as we move forward in this book today, is we need to understand whom... This writer, the Apostle John, is writing about. If you look with me in John chapter 1, he uses a title, or we could say a, a, a name of, for Jesus, the word who became flesh, according to our text today. John could have used many different titles when he opened his prologue to talk to us about who this person is that he's writing about. He could have used the title Messiah, or Lord, or Savior, He uses it throughout his book, or son of God, a son of man, son of David, king of the Jews. All these pointed to the reality, the title of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't. He opens up his gospel, he chooses to use the word, word, Jesus as the word. It's this all-embracing name and title that is the foundation of the rest of the book as we go through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And look what he says. He opens up, in the beginning was the word, the logos, pointing back to creation. We talked about that. The word was is a verb that talks about preexistence. So in the beginning was the word before creation, in eternity past no beginning, no end was the word. Make believe you don't know who the word is for the moment. John is saying, in the beginning was the word, eternal, before creation. And the word was with God. So even though the word is co-eternal, co-existing, the word is separate because he was with God, face to face, we talked about. And then John makes this colossal claim. In the beginning, not only was the word eternal, as God is eternal, and not only was the word was with God, face to face is the term used there, the word was God. This phrase perfectly preserves, preserves the word's co-eternal existence, co-essence with God, and yet 
separate identity as the second person of the Trinity. The Greeks, if you remember, they used the word logos to point to their um, um, the idea that th- there's this logos, this, this rational, this impersonable personable force in the universe. This word holds everything together. For the Jew, the word was, was God's agent for creation, God's mode of revelation, God's spoken word of salvation. So the Jews and the Greeks had both this kind of idea about the logos. John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse 4, in him was life itself, self-existent one. And in his life, he ex- self-existent, he is the light for all men. See that, verse 4? But then like a good Bible teacher, John continues his thoughts in verse 14. And he says, this word who, who became flesh, this word who is God, this word who is eternal, this word who is with the Father, became flesh. And, and you need to grasp this. You need to see this. You need to embrace this with everything you are. This co-eternal word, this co-essence with God the creator has become something. Has become flesh. So in these verses, we'll go through this movement in three headings. First, the mysterious incarnation. Two, the marvelous acquisition. And three, the meticulous revelation. So that's where we're going if you're taking notes. First, the marvelous, excuse me, mysterious incarnation. Look what John says about the word. So you have this big picture of who the word. The word is with God. The word was God. The word is life. The word is light. Verse 14. And the word that I've been talking about, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, became flesh. He's not a rational, impersonal uh, principle. He's not just simply a vehicle in which God creates, reveals, and delivers his people. Here the word who is co-eternal, co-existent with God, has become flesh. Literally, this, fr- this phrase is infleshed. He was infleshing with us. This is where we get the term incarnation. Actually, this comes from a Latin word, incarnatio, and it used to, in Old English, years ago, spoke of a color that was pink in, in color, like almost like the flesh of a being. And again, incarnation became a flower and, and, and things developed. But originally, in flesh, looks like flesh. You know, every year, and I, we got Christmas coming up. How many people like Christmas music, man, right? It's just, ah, uh, so much, it's so much fun. You put it on in July once in a while, I do, just for fun. It's like, why do we listen to this great song once a year? But anyway, um, you know the song, Charles Wesley, Hark the, Angels, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I'm not ashamed, I'm not embarrassed to say that no one completely understands the miracle of the incarnation. No one will ever completely understand it. I don't even think we're going to completely understand it when we get to glory. There is certainly a, a mysterious aspect how God the creator has come and enfleshed with us. How exactly did the word become flesh? How did God the creator take on humanity? How does the infinite become finite? The immortal become mortal where he dies. 
Eternity enters into time and space. The creator created the universe, enters his own creation. This transcended supernatural becomes natural. The invulnerable God becomes vulnerable as a baby. The invisible became visible. The transcendent God, the the high and above, separate from all of creation, becomes a person that you can hug. It's glorious. It's awestruck. It's amazing. And it's true. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology book, says this. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. More amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than creation of the universe The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will certainly, for all of eternity, the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe, end quote. This passage teaches us not that God took on the appearance of humanity. It's not like God came down and put on a coat of humanity. The women are studying the book of 1 John on Monday night. And my wife and I have been talking about it as the study has continued. And you guys are learning about Gnosticism. John's writing against Gnosticism. Transliteration of the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. This hidden knowledge, this secret knowledge that you can tap into for the, for the divine self to, to, to appear or to, to show itself. It's all in our New Age movement as well. And the Gnostics in that day believed that Jesus just took on the body. Because the body is evil and the spirit is good, so he's not really human. They say he just clothed himself. He was an apparition. He was, uh, you know, a a ghostly in some sense. Or if not, the the spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism and then departed. And they have all these different little quirks and stories about how Jesus was not fully human. John breaks right through that. And I'm going to tell you, you may think, well, that was back then, the Gnostics and the secret knowledge and all that stuff. We deal with it today. We deal with it today. Uh, If you have never heard of the gospel according to Judas, um, it was was a two-hour special on National Geographic talking about this Judas gospel. It's all Gnostic teachings. Um, Many of you have heard the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, again, a Gnostic teaching. It's based on an entirely concepts of Gnostic gospel, the special revelation. They said Judas really understood Jesus. Nobody else did. Cults do it today. You, there's certain parts of their religion, their perspective, that they don't want no one to know. It's a secret thing going on. Special knowledge, special revelation. John's like, the word became flesh. He became fully human. In fact, the word became here is not the same word in verse 1. It talks about his eternal existence. It talks about him being something he was not, coming into humanity. John says the eternal word has now become human. He becomes what he was not. The word always was God, but the word was not always human. And now the word who is God has become man. That's what he's saying here. It's mind-blowing. He entered into the realm of time and space, experiencing creation. He didn't cease to be God, but he added humanity. We find that in Philippians 2. Who Jesus was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to hold on to. 
But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men without sin, being found in human form. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. You see what he's saying? Jesus, yes, stepped out of glory. He took on humanity. Many people say he temporarily laid aside some of his divine attributes. And even the the full display of his glory, we don't see. It's kind of veiled in humanity. But he did not cease to be God. There are cults out there that will teach you that. And I, I simply say, a God, God creator, who ceases to be God creator is not God at all. Jesus, the word is telling us, is that he stepped out of heaven's glory, and took on full humanity. If you read the New Testament and you read the gospel accounts, you'll find that Jesus was born like any other baby boy. He experienced hunger and thirst. Luke tells us that he grew in stature, in wisdom, in favor with God. He had an uncorrupted emotional life, pure love, compassion. He was angry, always with a righteous anger. He was tired. He was tempted. He died and yet without sin. When Jesus was born, the person who was from the eternity past remained, was still the eternal word, filling the universe, but now in this virgin womb, the divine and the frailty of our humanity permanently, irrevocably have been united. Theologians talk about it not being mixed together. It's not like he acted God and he acted man. It was one, again, a miracle. The God-man. Jesus became man and so was and continues to be God. Man in two distinct natures, one person forever. Some of you may be familiar with the Chalcedon, uh, um, uh, Council of Chalcedon in uh, 451 AD when they fought against this and there was heretics coming up trying to bash just like they do today the deity of Christ. And um, they, they've come to a conclusion that's been standing since 451 AD. That the one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, one substance. Two persons, but not two persons, not two separate persons, man and God, but one person, the only begotten Son of God. Now, some of you think, all right, that's that's great. You got some history. You got you got some you know understanding of 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 the the heresy in that day, even some of that today. What does that mean for me today? Hebrews four. We do not have. Jesus, the high priest, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows. He understands. He was fully human. He experiences the things we experience. Let us then, he says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't find comfort in our weakness, our temptations, our struggles, clinging to an impersonal force. We find comfort in our weakness. We find comfort in our temptations. We find comfort in our struggles, clinging to Jesus, the God who created us, the man who understands us. That is so important. He's not some phantom. 
God himself, our creator, lived, yes, without sin, but he really lived. He really felt the pain we feel. He really feels the hurt we feel. He understands the betrayal and hardships of life. Do you find comfort in that? I I hope you do. Dorothy Sayers, she's an English playwright. She wrote this. I love this quote. She says, for what the incarnations means, the fact that God became a man, among other things, is this, that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, that's us, he had the honesty, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever he is doing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritation of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, even death. He was a man. He played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it well worthwhile, end quote. That's our God. That's our God. Though though the incarnation, the invisible made visible is mysterious, it should bring you comfort to know that. I want to encourage you this morning to think and find comfort in God coming and dwelling among us and understanding and receiving and and going through life just like you are, just like I am. The mysterious incarnation. Look at the marvelous acquisition. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the one as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. We'll deal with 15 next week. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, one of the ways you have to understand this passage, and there's a guy by the name of Gerald Barchett. He does the New um, American Commentaries, a great commentary on John. He, he writes something very, very, very... Um, intuitive, and and you'll see why. He writes this about this passage. He says, in analyzing this crucial verse of the prologue, which is the end of the prologue, it becomes quickly apparent that this verse is like a great jewel, many facets, that spreads its rays of implication into various dimensions of Christology, the theology of Christ. As summary of this verse, it may be said that the evangelist, that's John, recognized and bore witness to the fact that the characteristics in this verse ascribed only to God by the Old Testament were present in the incarnate Logos. The Word became flesh. He says God's unique messenger to the world who not only epitomized in person the awesome sense of God's presence in the midst of his people, but also evidenced those stabilizing divine qualities God's people had experienced repeatedly. See what he's saying? He's saying... The things in which John is writing about is pointing to something that the Jewish people who had the Old Testament would completely understand. They would know it. 
They, they would read that verse and immediately something would click in their brain. So if I said to you, and those of you who, who, who have been in Sunday school, maybe grew up in the church, if I said to you, you know, God really loves you, that he gave his son for you, that if you believe in him, you will not be separated from him, but you will have eternal life. Hopefully, some of you would say, that sounds like John 3.16. Thank you. When the Jewish people read John, the gospel according to John, verse 14 through 18, they immediately went to an Old Testament story which is written all over the pages of John to something that was very, very, very clear to them in the Old Testament. Turn with me, because we have to look at it, Exodus chapter 32. As they read these verses, their mind is going back to the Hebrew scripture of old, of their forefathers, of, of, of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, of an incident, of a, a historic event that took place. So keep your finger in John and go to Exodus 32, okay? And remember, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt in John is the word tabernacle or tented with us, okay? Full of grace and truth. I mean, look at that passage. It, it, uh, it dwelt it among us, full of grace and truth. You even got Moses in John 1, right? Exodus 32. Uh, yeah, Exodus 32. Let me just lay it, let me, let me, let me lay the foundation quickly. Exodus 32, Moses had gone to the mountain, Sinai, to receive the law. It actually, in chapter 24, it says that he was there. The God, God came down and dwelt among them. Well, Moses and his Shekinah glory came down. His presence came down on the mountain. You have glory, you have dwelling, you have Moses. Everything in Exodus, okay? And if you remember the story, he comes down from the mountain He's not really happy, right? He finds his people and his brother Aaron, who is supposed to be his mouthpiece, who is supposed to go with him. He finds Aaron and the Israelites, after coming down from the law, uh, from Sinai with the law, he finds them worshiping a golden calf, right? There's an orgy going on. They took all their gold off. They threw it all together. Boom, a calf came out. And I don't know how that happens, but it, uh, it did. And, and they're like, you know what? This is what brought us out of Egypt right? Moses is like not happy, right? Not, probably, not only was he angry, I think just really disappointed as well, right? And he comes down off the mountain and he smashes the, the, the Ten Commands, right? He just smashes it. And God says, all right, Moses, I see what they're doing. Get out of the way. I'm smoking them all. Fire and brimstone, tars coming down from the sky. And Moses said, no, 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 don't do that, Lord. And, and God intercedes, Moses intercedes and God does not smoke everybody. A few thousand people die. It's a dark time. God had just delivered them. God brought him up to the mountain. God gave him the law. And now the people have rebelled totally from him. And in the midst of this bleak, dark time of Israel, God would meet with Moses in the tabernacle. Not the whole tabernacle that he would build, but this tent of meeting, God's Shekinah glory would come and dwell, and, and God would meet with him. Look at verse, uh, look at the end of verse 32. At the end of chapter 32, verse 34. It says, but go now, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall be, go before you. Nevertheless, in that day, I will visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So in the midst of this, 
God tells him, listen, I still want you to go. I want you to lead the people. I will send my angel. I will send my angel. I'm not going to destroy everybody. Moses, you're my guy. Chapter 33, verse 7. Moses takes the tent, pitches it a little way from the camp. Everyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. Moses enters in the cloud, uh, excuse me, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, descends, stands in the entrance of this tent, this tabernacle, and the Lord speaks to Moses. And when the people saw, look at verse 37, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, when they saw this cloud, this Shekinah glory in this tent of meetings with Moses, they all worshiped. Verse 11 says of chapter 33, the Lord used to speak to Moses, look what it says, face to face as a man speaks to his friends. So Moses, Shekinah glory, face to face, presence of God filling this tent. Then look at verse 12. Moses cries out, you see, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send me. Aaron dropped out. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor, O Lord, in your sight, please show me. Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find grace, favor in your sight. Consider to this nation, it's your people. Verse 14, and God said to him, catch this family, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will go, not go with me, Moses saying, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found grace in your sight, favor in your sight? I and all your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I, your people, from every other nation on the face of the earth? Right? We're different, man. We're different from it. You, God, creator, come down. You meet with us. You dwell with us. We see your glory. The, the Shekinah glory comes down. We're different. And then Moses says, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor, grace in my sight, and I will make my name known. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Show me your majesty. Show me your intrinsic, incalculable words. Show me. Right? I'm in this dark place. These people aren't listening. You want me to go? I'm not really sure. But if, if, if you want me to go, God, please show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. Let me see you. Let me know you. I don't want to move. I don't want to move unless I have the presence and the sense of the living God. Then I can move on. That's what's going on. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. Lord, unless I know and sense your presence in my life, unless I see what you want me to see, unless I hear what you want me to hear, I don't want to move. I want to know you. Show yourself to me. Verse 19. He says, I will, God says, I will make all my goodness. Notice that. It was glory, now it's my goodness. Pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. He's declaring himself. I'm sovereign. I'll be gracious to whom I'm gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face. Why? For man shall not see me and live. Think about John 1. The word became flesh, 
tented among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what John is saying? When Moses could not see, Jesus Christ becomes the full expression of God's grace and truth. He was the full expression of it. What was partially revealed in the Old Testament, now we have seen the invisible God that no one can see and live. We see in Jesus Christ. He didn't descend and ascend in a cloud in the, in the, in the, in the, in the tent, in the tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. Chapter 33 of Exodus, look again. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand, Moses, stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, because you can't see it, but I'm going to pass by you, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand that until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back. You'll see partial glimpse of my glory. But my face you shall not see. And that's what happens. Chapter 33, Moses goes back up to Sinai. Gets the tablets, comes back down, right? The cloud comes, the glory comes, and, 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 and he gets a, this glimpse of his glory. Chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 5, look what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him. And he proclaimed, just like God said he would. You get a glimpse of my glory, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. Look what it says. The Lord, verse 6, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Chapter 34, verse 6. You see that? Underline it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. You see what's going on here? Moses says, let me see your goodness, let me see your glory. The Lord promises to show him his goodness, and as he does, he declares to him, I am the Lord, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Two very important Old Testament words. Has said, Hameth. God's has said his free, loving, covenantal grace and love to his people. That's grace. The covenantal love, the unending love of God in covenant with his people. That's grace. That's has said. And then he says, not only is it steadfast love, but it's faithfulness. That word faithfulness means truth. It's about reliability. It's about faithfulness and, and keeping your word. It's about being honest and trustworthy and truthful. You see what Moses is saying? Moses is saying when the Lord showed him a part of his glory, the Lord declared, I am grace, I am truth. Look at our text. I have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of hesed, full of emet, full of grace, full of truth. The theme's right out of Exodus. Grace and truth point back to God's revelation to Moses. The very glory and truth that Moses could not see that was hidden from is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. The word who became flesh is none other than God, the incarnate one, the one who spoke to Moses, the one that hid Moses, the one who could not show Moses his face, for he would die, has become man and is standing before John. That's what he says here. And look at verse 16, like if that's not enough, for from his fullness, Jesus, full of grace and truth, 
We have all received, acquired, grace upon grace. NIV has received one blessing upon another. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean, grace upon grace? The preposition ante means replacing grace upon grace. In other words, substituting grace upon grace. Uh, the NIV doesn't get it right there, I don't think, but the ESV gets much closer. Grace upon grace. So there's grace, and then there's replacing, there's substituting grace. You have two forms of grace. One replaces the other. Grace upon grace. We say, well, what does that mean? Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, one grace, and grace and truth, truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law given by Moses is to be understood as an earlier display of grace. Paul calls it, calls it holy and good in Romans 7. And the covenant law is seen as a gracious gift that replaces the greatest gift of grace and truth embodied in Jesus Christ. Now sometimes it's hard to think of God's law given to Moses and given to us as a work of grace. I, I think part of that is we don't understand the law of God. But if we remember that God's law, the five books of Moses, if you want to talk about it, or, the, or the law itself, is not some distant, cold set of rules that God just wrote. Here it is. Hey, have fun trying to follow that. There you go. Let's see. You You know, look at that. He broke every one of them. You know, that's not the law of God. The law of God given to us through Moses is an act of grace because it reveals to us the very nature, the very character of God. It's who he is. It's part of who he is. And he reveals his will. He reveals himself to us through the law. In fact, if you look at the law, there's lots of places in the law that speaks about the sacrifices where one can come and have their sins atoned for, at least a yearly account for the Old Testament, that the people of God can come and be with God. So he says there's, there's, there's grace there. But there's greater grace. There's greatest grace. He's saying if you want to see a greater grace demonstrated than the law of Moses, look at what's found in Jesus Christ. There's a whole new economy has been introduced through Jesus, who is the greater Moses, the greater Abraham, David, Jacob. In Jesus Christ, grace and truth reach their fullness. And he says, look what he says, it's available to you. For from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. C.J. Ryle writes this. Listen to this quote. All who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need out of the full store that resides in him for his people. It is from Christ and Christ alone that all our spiritual wants have been supplied. End quote. See what he's saying? The law is a, is a gracious gift. It's a gracious revelation but it does not compare to the greatest revelation and the greatest amount of grace. You see, in Jesus Christ, you see, Moses only partially revealed God to us. Jesus completely does that. Moses did give us a law and appointed to Christ. Moses wrote down the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law reflects and mirrors the, the light and character of the nature of God, but Jesus is the light and the very image and character of God. Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, you remember, and those who looked on the snake wouldn't die. Jesus was lifted up so that death itself will be defeated. Moses gave manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the bread of life. Do you see that? What Moses promised, Jesus accomplished. What Moses typified, Jesus exemplified. 
Mega grace. Do you realize that God could have came down in Israel as a judge? God could have sent a judge to judge us and to condemn us, rightfully so, but he didn't. He sent the son to die, to reveal his divine glory, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh so that the word can be gracious to us. Not cheap grace. Righteous, God-exalting, costly grace. It cost his very life. The marvelous acquisition. In Christ was where all the fullness of grace and truth dwelt and he provides for us all our needs. The abundant supply of grace and truth flows. It limitless to those who trust in him. Number three, the miraculous, excuse me, the, the meticulous revelation. Look at verse 18. No one, no one has ever seen God. Actually, in the Greek, it's God is first. God, no one has ever seen. The only God or the only begotten God, he's talking about the word, who's at the Father's side has made him known. The word only God, monogenes, means that, yes, uh, not simply that he was a created being. It doesn't talk about his creation. It doesn't talk about um, his origin. That word has to do with being the one and only. You remember that, John three sixteen, One and only son of God. The one and only begotten. It's not that he was born created. It has to do with him being the unique, the eternal, of the same substance, of the same nature as God. That's what it means. And that's what he's saying here. The only God, God himself, Right, so that 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 that, that speaks. Look what he says, it, John one eighteen. John one eighteen actually is a circle back to John one. John eighteen is actually a circle back to John one. He's circling back. He's saying, yes, he is God. Yes, he was with God. You see what he says? The only God who's at the Father's side, Father's lap. Earlier he said was with God, protos, um, uh, theon, ton theon, mean face to face. Now he says he's with the Father's lap. The greatest possible closeness, heart to heart with the Father. The Word was at the Father's side and he has made him known. The Word was with God, the Word was God. You see? He ends his prologue where he begins. And that word made him known is where we get our word exegete. He has declared, he has explained He has made fully known, he narrated, he portrays, he declares thoroughly, he exegetes the very nature and person of God. No wiggle room. No wiggle room out of that. John is clearly saying that Jesus has come and he has the ability as no one else to show us the Father. That's why Philip, show me, show me God, show me Jesus, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. Long ago, Hebrews would say, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the word who became flesh, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. That's our Jesus. He, the Word, the Son, the self-expression. You want to say, what is God like? What is God asking? What does God want? Why are we here? Look at Jesus. That's what he's saying. Look at Jesus. Yeah, Moses spoke face to face. Not like this. In fact, Isaiah 6, 
He, Isaiah, if you know the story, he goes in, he sees this, the, 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 the train of the robe, and I see the Lord sitting on high. If you look at that text, he don't actually see him. He sees the, the bit of the hem of his robe, that's all. And he breaks down, woe is me. In the Old Testament, no one has seen God face to face, and John says, now we have. Now we have. The invisible made visible. Jesus Christ explains God to us. He interprets to us. Apart from him, we cannot know God. In the person of Jesus, God incarnate is visible, made visible. What Moses longed to see, we see. Do you see that? You need to see that this morning. John comes full circle. He, 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 he tightly uses this prologue, this time of, of writing in the first 18 verses to construct this multifaceted reality about God and his son. For the reason, verse 12 of John 1. So that we can have the ability, the right, the status, the legitimacy to become children of God. John writes in 20 that he writes all these things that you may know. You may know Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the son of God. One and only of the same nature, God. Believing you may have life in his name. Family, do you want to believe that God is a loving God? Do you want to believe that God is a loving God? What do you base that on? Imagination, speculation, base it on revelation. Base it on what God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to end like this. Give me two more minutes. Now listen to me, please. Where does grace and truth and glory culminate in the gospel according to John? Where does grace, truth, and glory culminate in the gospel according to John? Some of you may know the New Testament, know that John and James and Peter went up to the transfiguration, the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus, this intrinsic glory shined through. He was face changed, glowing. It was just a magnificent display of the intrinsic glory as God the Son just reveals a little bit of glory to his disciples. Say, that was a glorious time. That, I mean, we've seen the glory of God in the transfiguration, this metamorphosis, of, uh, that's the Greek word, that Jesus is shining like a light bulb. It says like lightning. His clothes became white. Do you know John doesn't mention it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that glorious time. John never does. Why? Because John, family, listen, John, for John, the preeminent, the apex the preeminent, the apex, the, the pinnacle of the manifestation of the glory, the intrinsic beauty and majesty and, in, and incalculable worth of God is seen at the cross. At the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension to heaven. Not shining in his face, not this glowing clothes, not this dazzling, but crucified on a cross John 12, Jesus gets his final instructions and he says this, listen to this. The hour has come, whenever you read that in John, the hour has come, he's talking about the cross. For the Son of Man to be glorified, you could say crucified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Father, glorify your name. Then the voice came from heaven, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. So where does God's glory, where does God's majesty, where does God's goodness, where does God's worth seen? 
at the cross. You see, at the cross is where the truth of God's holiness and justice is satisfied in the death and perfect sacrifice and substitute of Jesus, where sinners can receive forgiveness who trust in him. It is only by believing the truth that Jesus is God in flesh. He is the word who became flesh, was crucified on your behalf. Can you experience forgiveness, grace, and love? Since Jesus is full of grace, you could come to him. And you're welcome to come. He wants you to come. He embraced full of grace. He's full of truth. He knows. And he says, I want to pour my grace out upon you. So beautiful and wonderful is the glory of Christ in the incarnation, but ultimately in this book. Running to that day is the Son of Man being glorified. Not in bright light, but in darkness, in shame, in no angels singing, only rejection and scorning and hatred, even rejection from the Father, while he takes our sin, this wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. Scripture says that he triumphs in grace and goodness on the cross. It was purchased there. His grace offers love and compassion. His truth means that we are sinners and we need to repent and turn from him. In fact, that's why he became flesh, so that he can die an atoning sacrifice for your sins. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to see God's love expressed? Do you want to know what God is really like and what God desires? Look at Jesus. Hear the call of the gospel to repent of your sins, trust in the Lord, believe in him, and have your sins forgiven. And you can meet God of glory in the person of Jesus Christ. You can learn to treasure and savor the heart of God when you look to the hill of Calvary, who is the Lord of glory. Lord of glory. Family, friends, behold your God. With nail marks in his hands and feet, the word made flesh. And as you take in the wonder of this truth, may you bend your knee and worship him. Second Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God has blind, the God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, the light, the life. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us, for for obeying the Father's call to be sent into this world, to take on flesh, to, to walk among us, to tabernacle among us, that we can see your glory, that we can see who you really are, our God, our creator, that we can see how much you love us, that you would do such great, mysterious, miraculous, meticulous things in our life so that, Lord, we could see how, for, how, for, how forgiven we are. And, Father, we pray that as we close and we worship Jesus, Lord, you would get the glory. Father, help us. Pour out your spirit on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.